God is a person. He is not just a force, although He certainly is powerful. He is not impersonal. He's not just some entity up there. He is a divine person. As humans, we are made in the image of God. We certainly don't often represent Him like we should, but in reality, we have three parts. God has three parts. We have so many of the same senses that God has. We see that throughout Scripture. When you have a valued and legitimate relationship, and there's been something that has come in between, if there's been a failure, you cannot ignore that. It just doesn't go away. It doesn't get better automatically. You have to deal with that situation. We must make things right with our God. Now, we have just uh, had a series on temptation, and the Lord just kept, just kept uh, impressing upon me to uh, keep ahead and keep going with this. And so, for seven weeks, we talked about temptation. Now, we're going to talk about what happens when, sadly, the inevitable. It would be nice if we could prevent sin from happening. And we gave lots of biblical uh, concepts of how to do that. But the fact is, it doesn't always happen. And sometimes we fail. And sometimes we fail miserably. And when we do so, uh, there, Satan who pushed us into it now is the same one with his finger pointing at us. Unbelievable. Making things right with God. And that's the title of our message series. We're going to do at least for three weeks, the Lord willing. We're going to take three Bible characters, uh, David and Jonah and Peter, at least three, as we talk about how to get things back right with God. Now, you may be here this morning saying, well, finally, a message I don't have to feel convicted about. Now, honestly, uh, you know what? I, uh, I feel like I am right with God. Not perfect, but I feel like I'm right with God. So, uh, you say, well, i maybe not going to... Uh, I'll eavesdrop on this message, but I don't have to just pay absolute attention because it really doesn't apply to me. It reminds me of what I read about Clark Clifford. He happened to be the White House counsel during the Truman administration. And he related this story. I had to laugh when I read it because it reminded me so much of each one of us. He was at the White House banquet one night when a guest turned to the woman that was next to him. He asked her, he said, did I get your name correctly? Is your name Post? Well, yes, it is, she said. Would it be Emily Post? She said, yes, it, it is. And she said, he said, are you the Emily Post, the world-renowned authority on manners? Well, she said, uh, yes, uh, I am. Why do you ask? Because the man said, you just ate my salad. <laughs> Knowing manners and applying manners are two different things. Now, we may know how to be right with God, but always applying it, maybe not so much. And so this morning, 
uh, all of us need to make sure that we make things right with God. I guess I would ask you the question this morning, are you right with God? Are you right with God? You pretty much know if you're right with your husband or right with your wife or right with some people, but are you right with God this morning? Certainly, we want to be. Let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this truth. We thank you for the beautiful music, the victorious reports we've heard, and Lord, the sweet fellowship, the hugs, the, the handshakes, Lord. We just are so grateful to be here in the house of the Lord. Lord, the fact is uh, we may never be here again. Help us to not just waste away a few moments by thinking about other things. Give us, Holy Spirit, ears to hear, spiritual ears. Give me words to speak, and Lord, I pray that you'll empower both the speaker and the hearer. Amen. Now, the fact is, this world is absolutely luring us every single second to sin. Our flesh is pushing us, the devil is pulling us, and we are in a battle. And then when we give in, the devil, rather than congratulate us on our smart choice, he turns the table, and the same one who tried to get us into sin now points his bony finger in our face and says, look at us, and he accuses and implicates and blames and stigmatizes. Such is the case with David. We're going to go to Psalm 51 this morning and stay there as our primary passage. This is the story of David's repentance, the words that he made to get right with God. He had had a moral failure. Whether Bathsheba was at least partly to blame, we're not sure. He had a fatal cover-up, which at best was manslaughter and at worst was cold-blooded murder. That's some pretty serious big-time sin, adultery and perhaps murder. But rather than this psalm be just depressing about just another failure, it is actually a tremendous song of hope. I remember hearing in Bible college uh, Dr. Eli Haru, who taught on the history of Israel, tremendous one of the most gifted Bible teachers ever heard in my life. He had a Norwegian accent. And uh, he said one day about David, he said, yes, students, David was a great sinner. But David was also a great repenter. And he was. And that's why we love him so much. And if your heart has ever been broken, if you've ever sinned, if you've ever just blown it, if you've ever been raw emotionally and spiritually, just go to the book of Psalms. You will find so much there to just comfort. It is the best medicine I know. Psalm 51, we find first of all a reminder of the way down, the terrible consequences of sin. Let's read verse one together, if you would, please. And if you don't have a King James Version, we can read here from the PowerPoint. Ready? Begin. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. 
any one of us are capable of any sin. That really is the definition of depravity. All of us are depraved. We might be saved and depraved, (laughs) thank God, but we all have a sin nature. Getting saved does not mean that we lose our capacity now to sin. Sometimes our sins are just absolutely premeditated. I mean, we know what we're doing, we plan it, we go right into it, and we know that. Other times, it is an unexpected opportunity combined with an undetected weakness. And when those two things come together, an unexpected opportunity and an undetected weakness, you can be sure that tragedy will follow. In fact, uh, if you're here this morning and say, well, i tell you one thing, I, at least I don't have to ever worry about that sin or that sin, then I remind you, it is, you are just setting yourself up for a fall. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have a funny doctrine going around the Christian circles today that seems to forget about our condition before the Lord and so focuses on our position before the Lord. They say things like, God doesn't see our sin. I remember listening to a guy on TV and some fellow, he was going off and saying, you know, God doesn't see our sin. I was like, you know what? If God doesn't see our sin, then how does God warn us about sin so much? No, it's just the fact that our sin is covered. And that's what he's saying here is that if we say that we have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. It happens to the best of people. We sin. I remember reading years ago, or hearing actually years ago, about an ex-criminal. This guy was just one rough dude. I mean, he, you name it, he had, he had done it. He was a rough guy. He got gloriously saved and was, uh, after some time, he was able to become a pastor of a country church. And he would preach out there, and boy, I'm telling you, he would really get to preaching. He was one of those preachers, like I remember hearing what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, I like to hear preachers preach like they're fighting bumblebees. (laughs) He was just going after it. Well, this ex-criminal was just preaching away, and he got so hot, and he got so bothered at the devil that he just stopped and let out a big old line of explicatives. I mean, women in the church turned blue. The men were like, what in the world? Mothers were plugging the ears of their children. This preacher was just cussing out the devil. Well, when he finally came to, he was aghast that he had done such a thing. He just closed his Bible, went off into the side room and just sat there just so upset that he had did such a thing in the pulpit. The people sat there for a while and just wondered what in the world, what happened here? And several of the leading men in the church, the deacons, looked at each other and they just kind of grinned and knew their pastor. And they went into that side room and they put their arms on that pastor and they said, pastor, we'll tell you something. We would rather have a man that cusses out the devil from the pulpit than we have a man who lies about Jesus. Amen. So we, we want you still to be our pastor. The fact is, folks, everybody sins, even the best people. 
Well, what happens when we sin? First of all, it dirties us. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me, wash me. David said, I just feel dirty. Not physically. I mean, he was a king. He bathed in a lavish marble tub. This guy was a king. He wore the most ornate and most uh, amazing clothes that any man could wear. They were certainly not dirty, and yet he felt grimy. It's a funny thing how sin makes us feel dirty. Some people who have emotional and mental illnesses, they find themselves with compulsive disorders of washing. I think a lot of times it's just guilt. It makes us feel dirty. And yet there is a strange fact about this feeling dirty, and that is in God's upside-down world, the feeling of dirtiness is actually a great way to know that you're holy. It's a great way to know that you're actually saved. The difference between a child of God and a child of the devil is that a child of God feels terrible when they sin. They feel dirty. A child of the devil, they don't even care. They're just dirty. I mean, I've never heard a pig... I've never heard a pig talk anyway, but I've never heard of a pig that would say something like, you know, I just can't stand the mud. No, I mean, a pig goes to the mud, and they, I mean, they just flop over, and they just love it. They just roll around. You can almost see them smiling. But you take a sheep and flop them in the mud, and they jump up of there, and they want out of there as quick as they can. A pig is content because it's his nature. Dirtiness uh, for a person that doesn't know the Lord, they don't even care, frankly. But for a believer, they care. It is a dirtying feeling. It not only dirties, but it drenches. It drenches the mind. Verse 3, I acknowledge this, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. In night and day, I can't get away from it. It turns every good steak into like I'm eating a hot dog or something. I just, it, all, my mind and my life is consumed. It's drowning me. That which David had done was haunting him. He couldn't get rid of it. It left an indelible mark. It wounded his psyche. It bruised him emotionally. He said, I'm just feeling terrible. And all sin shows up in the life of a believer. Now, if not feeling dirty, it might show up as a migraine headache. It might show up as the inability to concentrate. It might show up as the irritable temper. It might show up as an inability to pray. But guilt always shows up. It shows up in one way or the other. Because oftentimes guilt uh, is associated with so many other things. It's like someone that comes to your property and you find some homeless person camping on your property. It wouldn't be so bad if they just slept there and left for, you know, after a few hours, but the fact is they bring their camping stove and they set up their tent and pretty soon they got junk everywhere. And when we allow sin to camp on our mind, pretty soon there's junk everywhere. It touches so many parts of our life. Guilt is a wound and it never heals until we put the heavenly antibiotic on it. Sin also dishonors, verse 4, against thee only, and thee alone have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Yes, David sinned against his nation, and yes, David sinned against his family, and yes, David sinned against his body, and yes, David sinned against his wife, and yes, David sinned against his children. But of all the sins that he sinned, 
the most tragic was that that was an affront to his holy God. The God who had saved him, the God who had redeemed him, the God who had written his name in the Lamb's book of life, had given him everything. He sinned against the very one who had done so much for him. And David was so just taken back by what he had done to God. He, had devast- he was devastated that he had so disrespected God. And if you've ever sinned and felt convicted about it, you know how terrible it feels that I disrespected God so much. It also depresses. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He said, man, I lost my joy. I lost my gladness. My happiness is gone. Now, it is possible to be saved and still be unhappy. In fact, the truth is the most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved person. In fact, many unsaved people are actually just going through life having a ball. As one person say, living high, wide, and handsome. But only for a time, of course. The fact is, an unsaved person can just move along, but a saved person, it just ruins their joy. I, I know myself, I've talked to so many others, they just, it just, they just feel so unhappy. It just, they can't do anything to get them happy. They may go to a movie, or they may read some book, or listen to some comedian, or listen to some music, but I mean, it's not too long before the sadness comes back. The next thing that it does is that it debilitates Verse number eight, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. What? <laughs> Was David saying that God had just put him in a UFC ring and beat him down and broken some bones on him? No, he was likely, this is a poetical statement. Remember the book of Psalms is part of the poetical books and so much of it is uh, allegorical doesn't mean we can't interpret it literally to a point, but it just means that here he's just saying, I have, it has messed me up physically. And that's what it says in Proverbs 17 and verse 22, a merry heart does good like a medicine. Sin is uh, a terrible thing to us physically. Did you know that when you're right with God, you actually stand up straighter? When you're right with God, you smile more. Did you know when you're right with God, you sleep better? Did you know that when you're right with God, you actually digest your food better? The fact is, when we're right with God, it helps us physically. Being right with God is a tremendous help physically, and the opposite is also true. Not being right with God just is terrible on us physically. And that's why, you know, people in the medical world, the medical society, they do the best they can, and we appreciate every procedure they do, every method. As I've said before, God uses three things to heal people. He uses methods, He uses medicine, and He uses miracles. And we thank God for the methods and the medicine, but the fact is, they can't always heal people because it's not always just a result of some physical bug or illness. It is a result of sin. Sin affects us physically. We know that it does. And God is telling us here that it is something that depresses and it debilitates, but it also damages. Verse number 10, create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me, a right 
spirit. He's talking about his heart. He's talking about emotions here. My emotions are raw. I feel bruised. I feel wounded. I never find peace. I never get any happiness. No matter what happens, I, my spirit's just not right. I don't feel right. I don't feel right in my home. I don't feel right at work. I just, I just don't feel right. If you've ever been to a place where you just don't feel right, something's not right. David was saying the same thing. He's saying, God, renew a right spirit. I want, I want feeling good again. David was emotionally wounded. And when you're emotionally wounded, you are not a fun person to be around. The truth is, have you ever met a backslidden Christian? Usually they are very sour at some point. Oh, I'm telling you, I would rather be around an old-fashioned, unsaved pagan than I would around a carnal, cantankerous Christian. And I've met some unbelievable, cantankerous Christians over my life. Like, what is the world's wrong with you? You need to go back home and just start reading your Bible until you get a better spirit. What's wrong with you? Come on now. You are saved. Miserable. And when you get miserable, you start getting feeling hurt and hurt people hurt people. That's what it says in Proverbs 17, 22, a bright, a broken spirit dries the bones. A broken spirit dries the bones and the bones have the marrow. And from the marrow is where we have so much of our health giving blood and life is in the blood. The Bible says it dries the bones, brittle bones. People say you need to have calcium and that'll keep your bones good. No, you need to have a right spirit with God. I'm not against calcium, but I'll tell you one thing. Calcium is not going to do a thing if we don't have a right spirit with God. It dries the bones. Broken spirit dries the bones and it shows up on our faces and it shows up in our spirit. It is a debilitating thing. It is a damaging thing. You know, being a pastor for decades now, almost four decades, well, four decades really, with being an assistant pastor for a couple years. We have seen just about every kind of uh, folks uh, come and go, and we've seen our sons and daughters uh, sometimes go off to college, sometimes stay here and go to college. But uh, numerous times, tragically, I have to tell you, and sadly, we have seen a son or a daughter go to college and parents, of course, are always very concerned, especially having raised a child up in a good home and they just, they're afraid of the influence and certainly a, a real concern. But uh, at some point they have to stand and they have to get out there in this world and make a difference. We send them out like wolves among, uh, or sheep among wolves, Jesus said. But we've seen them go to college. They're going to get some training. They're going to go into some profession. And there they are in college and been kind of sheltered and lived in a Christian home, went to church. And then some happy guy, some happy unsaved girl will come along and they'll meet them. And they'll, of course, just, you know, they're handsome or they're pretty or whatever. And pretty soon they're emotionally involved with them. And just so many times we've seen them go off and boy, they just then get married to this person. Their life's just, and it's just such a damaging thing. And it's terrible to their offspring. It's just terrible. To, it's such a divided home. 
Later, we've talked with some of them and asked them, I mean, what? What were you thinking? What, what was going on? I mean, wh- why didn't you see the signs and why didn't you do something about it? And I remember this one young lady telling me, she said, well, I'll be honest with you, Pastor. He was nicer than any Christian I knew. And uh, I was sad to say that it included her family. This unsaved boy was happier and more friendly and nicer and more kind than the saved people she knew. Now, I think there was a demonic thing in all that. I think the devil was an angel of light in it. But I also think this. I think so often in a Christian's life, they just have such sour they're just so sour and so critical and so negative that, frankly, young people grow up and say, well, I'm, I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be like my mom. I don't want to be like my dad, sadly. Or I don't want to be like that person in the church. And that's what happens when we let sin stay there. That's why we cannot let it stay there because it affects us physically. It dirties us. It affects our mind. It dishonors the Lord. It depresses our spirit. It debilitates us physically, and it damages relationships. That's why David is saying here, this sin is absolutely ripping up everything I hold dear. And finally, it discontinues. That is, it has just severed my Christian expression, my walk. He got lip lock, verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, uphold me with a willing spirit, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Do you know how you can tell whether a person is backslidden or not? Well, I'll give you one, one little rule here. As a general rule, singing stops. Oh, they may sing from the mouth, but they don't sing from the heart. Praise withers and witnessing stops altogether because sin shuts down praise in the mouth. Because the devil starts telling them, who are you to sing hymns like, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came in to my soul? Or who are you to stand up and sing victory in Jesus when you don't have victory in Jesus? Who are you to be testifying? Who are you to be witnessing? I know a lot of people don't witness because they think, frankly, I don't even feel very confident about my own faith. And how sad to allow something so, we'll go through months, sometimes years of just so introspection, we forget that God said, just get right with him and then go out and tell people. But sin puts a closes our mouths and it closes our praise. The devil often intimidates Christians from their boldness. And that's why Paul said, pray for me that I'll have boldness. We've seen the way down. Now what's the way up? Hallelujah. There is a way up out of that. And prayer is prime. We come out of it through prayer. First of all, it's a prayer of confession, a prayer of confession. David took an honest look at his life. Look at verse 3. Psalm 51, verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions. I acknowledge it. (laughs) And that's really a great key is acknowledging. He took an honest look at his life. He took an honest look at his relationship with God. And he said, you know what? I have got to clear the air. I've got to make sure that I take care of my commitment to the Lord. 
With each sin we commit, without confessing it, we draw further and further away from God. We build a wall. Most of the people that have come here for a while, or you know that on our back part of our campus here, we have a staff house. You, if you don't know that we have it there, you may not know it because there's a big, beautiful block wall around that little portion of the campus. When we first uh, decided to put that back there, and then we put the block wall in, we got the best uh, kind of block we could, and we made the foundation there so it would stand strong, and we had the rebar there, and so we, we did, really did our homework, and they worked so hard. One by one, they would put those blocks there, and then put little shims in there to make sure it stayed level, put some mortar in, and put another block in. But one by one, we noticed at first it was a little tiny wall, and then it crawled up to the next one, and then after several days went by, that block wall, I think it's eight feet tall, it is a huge block wall, and we couldn't, you could not see anybody on the other side, and they couldn't see us. And that's exactly what happens when we sin without confessing. One sin, we put a block down. Another sin between us and God, we put another block down. Another sin without confessing, I put another block down. And one by one, we keep putting these blocks down. We never confess. We just go on to the next day, go on to the next day, never acknowledge our sin. And that's what 1 John 1 says. If we confess, the word confess means say the same thing that God says. Just call it by what it is, sin. Oh God, I confess it. If we don't, Pretty soon, there's a block wall, and we can't even see God. That's why David said, I acknowledge my sin. If David hadn't acknowledged his sin of adultery, if David hadn't acknowledged his sin of violence, it would have, he would have never been able to be used of God. He might, he'd still be saved, but he would have a, just a devastated life. Someone likened our life to, from the day that we get a born again, is like we get a garbage bag in our hand. The day that I get saved, you are handed a garbage bag. All I was, uh, I got born again. I asked Christ into my life. I repented of my sin. I took him as my savior and I was handed a garbage bag. Now the goal is to keep that garbage bag empty. But so often all day long, we just, we sin and that bag just fills up one piece of paper after another. Now, at first, it's not very heavy. At first, it's just a bag. At first, it's full of, you know, a few papers. But if every day we take these compromises, we take a look at something we shouldn't have, but we don't confess it. We don't acknowledge it. We just move on. Then we fill up our garbage bag. We fill up our garbage bag. And before long, we're carrying around all kinds of garbage with us. Can you imagine what life would be, how stinky it would be? Can you imagine how heavy of a burden that is to just carry the garbage around that we've been carrying for months, maybe years? Folks, I'm telling you what, for people who find the truth of confessing to God and just clearing it up before God, I mean, it is like such a relief. You mean I don't have to carry that stinky bag of garbage around anymore? No, you don't have to carry it around at all. Just keep it empty. Confession is like taking the garbage out. When our children were growing up, I would tell the boys, uh, 
Luke, and then Nathan would say, son, take the garbage out. Take the garbage out. I say the same thing to each of you this morning. Take the garbage out, friends. Take it out. Now, I would have been not very happy if they would have gone out halfway and dropped it out in the middle of the yard and only went halfway. No, take it and put it where it's supposed to. Take it where they'll get rid of it. There was a little nine-year-old girl in church. She was with her mother, and she started feeling very ill. Mommy, she leaned over kind of quietly. Can we leave now? No, her mother replied. Mom, I think I've got to throw up. Well, then go out the door, go around to the back of the church, go out to the bushes there and throw up. So she let the little girl go. About two minutes later, the little girl returned to her seat. Her mother looked at her and said, did you throw up? Yes. How in the world could have you gone all the way to the back of the church and returned so quickly? I didn't have to leave the building, Mommy. What? She said, well, when I went out to the lobby, they had a box out there. It said there were some cans in it, and right next to the front door, it said, for the sick and for the needy. That's what I call stopping short, amen? (laughs) Getting rid of the sick and getting rid of the junk. The truth is, folks, we are a sin-sick people, and carrying our garbage around and just putting our uh, refuse where it doesn't belong is just no good. Folks, we need to take it where it belongs. Take it to the foot of the cross. And that's where the garbage needs to be, the way up, a prayer of confession. And then number two, a prayer of concession. Confession is good, but we need to concede something. We need to lay down our sin. I mean, confessing without changing means nothing. How many times have I counseled somebody and said, my husband says this, but... He never changes, or my wife says this, but she never changes. The fact is, we need to turn to wisdom. And that's what David said in verse 6, 51, 6, make me to know wisdom. God, it's not enough that I just lay the bad aside. I want it to know the right way. Some just seem to just keep relishing in their sin, almost go back to it as like it's some rummage sale. They just keep going back around. One man said, my wife doesn't get hysterical, she gets historical. (laughs) She's always rummaging back through the stuff that we've gone over. Some people take the past and they just turn it from a testimony into a bragamony. I mean, they're just telling everybody about their sin. You think almost like they're happy about their sin. But confession without concession, confession without conceding, confession without repentance, (laughs) it doesn't mend a relationship. Jesus wants us to dump that garbage. He wants us to tear down that wall. He wants us to concede. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I love that statement. Create. You know what Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, do you know what they did at creation? They spoke something into existence that wasn't there before. One of the lies of evolution and evolutionary theology is that God took something that had taken billions of years to form, and then God made it. No, God spoke it into existence out of nothing. The Bible says He spoke it 
into existence. That's what creation is. He spoke it. That's the word that's used here. Create. Speak something into existence in my life that isn't there. And oh God, I have a dirty heart. Oh God, I have a broken spirit. Oh God, I don't know how I can ever love this man again. I don't know how I can ever forgive this woman. I don't know how I can ever move forward. I don't know how I can do that. You can if God creates something new. You'd say, well, I have too much past. Yes, but if God creates something new, if God puts something new there, then it's just like the day of creation. The earth was null and void, and there was no form. There was nothing about it good. And then God spoke something good into existence. Hallelujah. That's what God can do. And that's what David was saying here. He was saying, Lord, I lay down my sin, and I ask you to speak wisdom into my life. A prayer of confession, a prayer of concession, and finally, a prayer of connection. We need to trust God that our sin is forgiven. We need to, verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Really? A new level of commitment leads me to a new level of service? A, later, a lady once confessed to a pastor that she had many years earlier had a terrible moral failure. He looked at her and said, ma'am, is this the first time you have ever confessed this sin? She said, oh, no, pastor. I have confessed this sin every night for the last six years. He looked at her and said, well, ma'am, I will tell you then, your sin is not adultery. Your sin is unbelief. You don't believe God's word about cleansing. And so many people just keep bringing it back and bringing it back, feeling like somehow they're like a Catholic Christian. They're going to do penance for all the bad things they've ever done, when in reality, all they're doing is just living in unbelief that the blood of Jesus can't somehow cleanse all sin. The sin no longer is adultery. The sin no longer is moral failure. The sin no longer is greed or whatever. Now it becomes unbelief. I love verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors. Wait a second. I don't think I'm reading this verse right. Usually, you're able to teach once you've gone to Bible college. Usually, you'll be able to teach once you become an obedient, faithful Christian. But this verse says, after I've sinned, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Yes. Obviously, there's sometimes needs to be some, you know, a waiting time or whatever. But the fact is, God said, you're not done just because you sinned. Nobody is done because they've sinned. Nobody is put on the shelf unless they want to be put on the shelf. Paul said, I'm so afraid that I'll become a castaway. He wasn't afraid that he'd be lost. He was just afraid that he'd no longer be able to be used. Then I will teach. After I sin, then I can teach. Frankly, sometimes that's the best teachers because they have blown it, and they know, and they're ready to warn somebody, hey, don't do this. I'm telling you, it is going to end up bad. Augustine wrote this. He said, the confession of evil works is the beginning of good works. 
when I become dedicated to extending the kingdom of God as never before, then I will teach, and then I will sing, and then I will serve. Oh, God, cleanse me and wash me and bring me back to where I need to be so I can teach, so I can sing, so I can serve, so I can give. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, every sin is either on my shoulders or it's lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Choose who you want. C.S. Lewis said, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. People say, oh, they need time to heal. Trust me, time does not heal. Jesus heals. Time is not the answer to sin. Christ is the answer to all sin. In fact, sometimes time only makes things worse until we get it to God and take that garbage bag and just dump it at the foot of the cross. My prayer this morning is that each of us would just leave that sin. None of us would walk out of this building with anything between their soul and the Savior. The great reformer Martin Luther recalled that he had a dream, and in the dream he was being attacked by the devil, just mercilessly attacked. The devil unrolled a long scroll containing a list of his sins and held it before him, spoke every sin. Upon reaching the end of that scroll, Luther asked the devil, is that all? And the devil said, oh no. He rolled out another scroll, began to read each sin. After he came to the end, he looked at the devil and said, is that all? He said, oh no, there's another one. He read each sin. And finally, when the devil had read off the last sin, Martin Luther said in his dream, he asked the devil, is that all? And the devil said, yep, that's it. That's quite enough. And he said that in his dream, he looked at the devil and said, well, you've forgotten one thing. And he said, what is that? He said, you forgot to write at the top of each one of those lists that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, all sin. And I say this morning, friend, there is a way down. We've seen it. It's tragic. But hallelujah, there is a way out and a way up. Confess and concede and connect. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.